This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Rivka Brown. What a pleasure to be joined by you this evening. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Michael. Kind of relieved by the end of the uh, sweaty summer days, I've got to admit. Still kind of sweaty and clammy in here, I have to say. I'm I'm incredibly frustrated at the moment because I smashed my iPhone and it turns out I've had insurance this whole time, but now they want to know where I bought it from and I just can't remember where I bought it from, when I bought it. So I've been paying this, I'll I'll work it out. If you've got any tips for finding out where you bought your iPhone from, do let me know. Um, We have some big stories tonight. Um, A viral clip coming out of the Australian business class has sparked discussion around capitalism. Some pretty important 20th century theories of capitalism are being sort of lived out in real time online. I'm I'm finding it incredibly interesting. Um, The Mirror have begun to name and shame. Um, shoplifters. It's very distasteful. And Alistair Campbell decides to hit out at Navarra Media. That does. Um, stay tuned for all of that. First, though, on Monday, we released this clip of former Tory MP Rory Stewart speaking to Ash Sarko. I want to move on from Jeremy Corbyn, but I mean, it's kind of striking that he's another 2019 casualty, right? Incidentally, I think it's disgusting. He was thrown out of the Labour Party. Just as I also think it was pretty peculiar that Boris Johnson kicked out two chances, the exchequer, six cabinet ministers, Winston Churchill's grandson, and the rest of us out of the Conservative Party. I mean, it's mad. Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think of him, is a major figure who represents a very significant part of Labour history and heritage. He was the leader of the party. Why do you think Keir Starmer did it? I think he is running a very controlling business with about three or four people trying to micromanage the Labour Party. I think he lacks confidence. I mean, I... I, I believe in politics as being about embracing difference and compromise and persuasion and conversations amongst different people. I was proud to be in debates on Afghanistan with Jeremy Corbyn. I listened to him carefully. Paul Flynn I liked a lot. And I think that Parliament is better when it encompasses those people. Now, I don't think that's necessarily about the voting record, but I definitely think it's about voices and personalities. Now, a lot of centrists have taken offence at Stewart's claim that it was disgusting to expel Corbyn from the Parliamentary Labour Party. This was former Tory MP Louise Mench's take. Rory Stewart, that's incredibly disappointing. I can tell you that many Jewish people will find your defense of Corbyn anti-Semitic in and of itself, even if you didn't mean it that way. It's not up to you, a Christian to minimize massive harms done to another faith group. Um, I think as far as I understand it, his wife and children are Jewish. Um, But this makes him anti-Semitic in and of itself to merely say that the previous leader of the Labour Party shouldn't have been suspended from the Parliamentary Labour Party by the current um, holder of the whip. This is how extreme this has got. Um, Claudia Mendoza is another person who has commented. She's director of public policy at the Jewish Leadership Council. This was her response. Perhaps if it had been anyone but the Jews found to be discriminated against in a political party, it would not be disgusting to see the leader of that party expelled. Um, I'm not really sure where that idea has come from. Rory Stewart engaged with Mendoza's post, saying this, Claudia, I don't think there is an easy route through on this. And I was also horrified by the anti-Semitism in Corbyn's Labour Party, but I don't believe it was justifiable for Starmer to expel Corbyn. V, happy though, if you'd like to come and sit down and listen to you. 
and perhaps try to explain a little my position. Um, so I'm not sure that Claudia Mendoza is getting angry and particularly, um, I, I'm not sure it's going to be open to a, a, a good faith conversation on this, um, but you give it a go, Rory. Um, Guardian columnist Sonia Soda also came out with a pretty hostile view to those comments from Rory Stewart. She said, I don't really understand how you could talk for more than a minute about Corbyn's expulsion from the Labour Party, call it disgusting, and yet fail to mention the words anti-Semitism or EHRC. Really disappointing from Rory Stewart. He is running a very controlling business, Stewart said when asked why Starmer expelled Corbyn. Seriously? What does it say of your opinion of the EHRC and its findings on anti-Semitism that it doesn't even merit a mention in that same sentence? These are only a small sample of the wave of criticism that came Stuart's way, especially from centrists and people who were always very much opposed to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, what's going on here then? Well, Rivka's diagnosis is here. Unable to make anyone fire or deselect him, the Liberal Commentariat must satisfy itself with calling Rory Stewart's comments disappointing. A sad day for the smear machinists. And then Sonia Soda didn't like that at all. She responded with this, smear machinists, says Navarra star for Rory Corbyn, anti-Semitism in the EHRC. Rory Stewart should take a bow at what he's legitimizing via Navarra Media. Um, he's legitimizing us. Well, what is he legitimizing? Um, as I say, this is just a small sample of the outrage that was on Twitter. And by the end of Tuesday, the pylon proved too much for Stuart, who posted this. I'm taking a break from Twitter back soon. Um, however, before taking that break, Stuart recorded an episode of his podcast with co-host Alistair Campbell. His Navara interview came up again there too. You said things to Navara Media, which I've never heard you say before. You said that what Keir Starmer expelling Jeremy Corbyn was mad. It was disgusting. You painted a picture of Jeremy Corbyn as some sort of amazing kind of, you know, Gandhi, Abraham Lincoln type figure, this giant of political history. And I just wonder, Roy, if you did that because you thought that's what they wanted to hear as opposed to it's what you really, really believe. No, I, I think you'll, you'll find in politer language that I've been making the same case on this podcast consistently. I, I see mm. expelling Jeremy Corbyn as being a really bad sign. And it's the equivalent, I think, of Boris Johnson throwing out 21 members of the Conservative Party, throwing out Ken Clark and six cabinet ministers. You don't do that. Mm. Mrs. Thatcher didn't do that. You didn't do that when you were in office. That's true. This guy was the leader of the Labour Party. He was also actually an MP under you guys, and you didn't throw him out. It, it's a sign, I'm afraid, of, of lack of confidence from Keir Starmer. He's running the Labour Party with a cabal of three or four people. He isn't really allowing a broad spectrum. Whatever you think of Jeremy Corbyn, and I absolutely agree that there are deep questions for him to answer around anti-Semitism. At the same time, he was leader of the Labour Party. He represents a huge spectrum of Labour opinion and Labour support. He represents a big part of Labour tradition. And I think it's very, very sad that he was thrown out. Yeah, okay. Anyway, I'm just making the point. I think you, I think you maybe exaggerated that side of your argument. I've never heard you say that before on this podcast. I've heard you I, say... I, we'll, we'll, we'll put the tape up. So that was just so unbearably reasonable, right? You know, he's got questions to answer on anti-Semitism. He's conceding to these people who are calling him out on, on Twitter, um, even though I'm pretty sure he can come to his own opinions by himself. Um, even that discussion, though, came in for criticism. Um, author Jamie Suskind posted this. Can't tell you how depressing it is as a Jewish person listening to this discussion. Corbyn was expelled from PLP because he belittled the EHRC report, not because of Brexit or because he was too left-wing or bad at winning power. Yet that actual reason features nowhere in the discussion. 
Um, now, it's probably worth reminding ourselves of what Jeremy Corbyn actually said about the EHRC report. This is from his 2020 statement. The EHRC's report shows that when I became Labour leader in 2015, the party's processes for handling complaints were not fit for purpose. Reform was then stalled by an obstructive party bureaucracy. But from 2018, Jenny Formby and a new NEC that supported my leadership made substantial improvements, making it much easier and swifter to remove anti-Semites. My team acted up, not hinder the process. Anyone claiming there is no anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is wrong. Of course there is, as there is throughout society, and sometimes it is voiced by people who think of themselves as on the left. Jewish members of our party and the wider community were right to expect us to deal with it, and I regret that it took longer to deliver that change than it should. One anti-Semite is too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. That combination hurt Jewish people and must never be Repeated. Rivka, your thoughts on this? Jeremy Corbyn belittled the HRC report, and therefore it's disgusting that Rory Stewart could have possibly opposed to his or opposed his expulsion um, from the PLP. This whole sorry episode, which has been, you know, which has culminated in in Rory Stewart leaving Twitter, and who knows what will become of, you know, the podcast that he hosts with Alice, hosts with Alistair Campbell, his political career. Um, all of this is yet to be seen. But one thing is really clear: the hysterical response to what Rory Stewart said, which didn't deny that. You know, in fact, he later went on to say he did think that anti-Semitism was a problem in Corbyn's Labour Party. He just didn't mention it in the interview with Ash. I mean, I myself believe that that's because he feels that anti-Semitism wasn't actually the main reason why Corbyn was expelled. Nonetheless, he's basically been hounded temporarily out of public life for saying something so tenuously linked to to, to, to anti-Semitism but but that exactly proves Corbyn's point that anti-Semitism and and the state of it and the response to it has been so dramatically overstated for political reasons. We've seen this happening blow by blow in real time in response to what R- Rory Stewart said. Rory Stewart says something really quite reasonable, quite um, you know uh, like rationally sort of justified, and then suffers an enormous pylon from liberal pundits, including people who, like Jamie Susskind, can leverage their own Jewish identity as a form of kind of to kind of add credibility and add weight to their argument. He gets attacked by the um, Jewish Leadership Council, by the Jewish Chronicle, by the Jewish News. And then eventually he has to leave Twitter. You know, what did he actually say? He just said he felt like as a former leader of the Labour Party as a, and as a major figure of political um, history, British political history, uh, Labour history, it was disgusting that he was expelled. Alistair Campbell, you can hear him basically agreeing with that argument on the podcast. He's sort of like, yeah, you know, I didn't do that when I was in power, fair enough. And yet, not even a whiff, the barest kind of, you know, whiff of a mention of anti-Semitism and what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in this political culture still leads to your instant cancellation. And that, in in effect, proves Corbyn's point that he made in response to the EHRC report, which is that anti-Semitism did exist in the Labour Party, just as it exists and has always existed, uh, you know, in, in political movements and throughout society, but to no greater extent than than in other parts of society, certainly to no greater extent than in the Tory party. So in a way, you know, people like Jamie Susskind, Claudia Mendoza are proving Corbyn's point in the way that they have 
in the overblown and hysterical way that they've responded to Rory Stewart. I think it's worth kind of questioning, though, why at a moment when Corbyn is possibly as uninfluential as he has ever been, he is not even a Labour MP, let alone the leader of the Labour Party. You know, there's some talk of him standing for the London mayoralty. I think that's unlikely to happen. He is possibly at his lowest ebb in terms of, of influence in this country. Why are they still so bothered about him? You know, Labour is on course to to, to win a majority in, in the next uh, general election. We've got Keir Starmer's face all over the Labour conference programmes going out. Why are they so worried about him? And I think that the, the reason is obvious, because if they were to admit that the reason Jeremy Corbyn was ousted from the Labour Party was not because of anti-Semitism, but because his politics could not be tolerated in our political system, could not be tolerated by an establishment which will not allow uh, a transfer of wealth from the wealth, from the rich to the poor, it's as simple as that, then the, whole, then the whole sham falls apart. They can't admit that this was the ground on which the 2019 and 2017 elections were run. And so if Jeremy Corbyn's name is ever mentioned in public life, it has to be slapped back down as, you know, as soon as it came up. Because Otherwise, it's, it, it becomes completely patent, the kind of dismantling of working class power that has happened through the destruction of Jeremy, Cor Jeremy Corbyn's Labour leadership. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, but I think what's really interesting with, with Stuart is that, yes, he's left Twitter, but unlike other people, unlike, um, you know, people who've been uh, more seriously had their careers kind of destroyed for association with Jeremy Corbyn or defending Jeremy Corbyn, Rory Stewart is simply not as vulnerable to these people. He's no longer a Tory MP. He's got a successful podcast whose listeners are probably not going to give much of a shit what he thinks about Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and he's got kind of nothing to lose. He's also um, just like simply doesn't really care what a lot of these people think of him. And so it's really interesting, like I said on Twitter, to see the kind of machine that, that sort of kicks into action at these moments where Jeremy Corbyn kind of pops up um, in public life, um, struggling against uh, the the force of Rory Stewart's popularity. You know, Rory Stewart, alongside Jeremy Corbyn, is probably one of the more popular uh, politicians and former politicians in this country. And, and you know, it's, it's a lot harder for those kind of smears to stick, basically. And so it's been quite a helpful test case in uh, the kind of um, mechanics of this smear machine as it fails effectively on, on Stuart, which it has done. Like, like I said, he's taking this break from Twitter, but you know, it's not like he's going to be deselected. It's not like he's going to be fired. Like he's just going to kind of hope everyone forgets about it and carry on. Yeah, I should say he, he hasn't necessarily left Twitter. I've just looked, he's still got his Twitter account. He just he tweeted, you know, he's going to take a break from it. He was, I think he was still tweeting some promotion today, but clearly he doesn't, he's tired of this, this debate. There's another story related to anti-Semitism and censorship that came out this week. It relates to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism, which has been adopted by many universities in Britain. It was always controversial um, because of how it conflated political criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. But by 2021, 119 universities had signed up to it. Now, that was after then-Education Secretary Gavin Williamson threatened to cut their funding if they resisted. Now, we always thought the IHRA definition was a very bad idea to adopt by the Labour Party and also um, by public institutions such as universities. And lo and behold, a report published today has found that the definition has led to, quote, 
unreasonable accusations being made against individuals and groups while also stifling academic freedom. Published by the European Legal Support Centre and the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, the report looks at 40 cases where claims of anti-Semitism have been made against someone. In 38 of those cases, the individuals were cleared after lengthy investigations and disciplinary processes. The two remaining cases are still ongoing. Most of those targeted are academics teaching and researching the Middle East, Palestinian students, and students advocating for Palestinian rights. Here's an example of one case brought against a student. In June 2021, a university received an anonymous complaint and opened an investigation into alleged anti-Semitism against a student who had posted on their social media a Human Rights Watch infographic about Israel's system of apartheid in the West Bank. They referred to the latter as ethnic cleansing and that it was reminiscent of South African apartheid. According to the complainant, the post was anti-Semitic because it was in breach of examples of the IHRA definition. Following legal support, the university found that there was no case to answer, but it took two months before it decided to drop the investigation. The report also contains testimonials from those targeted. One student told the investigators this, It was really difficult to hear that you might be kicked out of university. It was very hard for me to focus on my studies. I had to do resits in the summer, so I didn't graduate until recently. I nearly didn't get into my master's program. I missed the deadline by two months. If it wasn't for Oxford University being really flexible, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. There's also a quote from an academic staff member who described their experience like this. While the case was going on, it was really terrible. It was on my mind all the time, really stressful. I was very angry and anxious. I never really thought I'd lose my job, but I couldn't rule it out. I felt betrayed by the university as a tactic of intimidation. These accusations are effective because the university did put me through the disciplinary process. It will remain a big problem until the university is willing to put more measures in place to protect us from these accusations. Besides subjecting academics and students to spurious investigations, the report also concludes that the fear of being accused of anti-Semitism has had a chilling effect on research and teaching. Rivka, I mean, this is exactly what we all predicted when it came to the IHRA definition being introduced. People said, well, where's the evidence? Who has been found guilty of anti-Semitism for breaching the IHRA um, definition of anti-Semitism? We said, well, the problem is that if you give legitimacy to the idea that these things may or may not be anti-Semitic, it may or may not be anti-Semitic, it might not be anti-Semitic to call the foundation of Israel racist, but it might be. And that's a good enough reason to start an investigation. If you leave open that possibility that it is anti-Semitic and sort of put the burden of proof on the person who's made that statement that they're not an anti-Semite, then what you'll end up doing is having many, many people being put through what are pretty, you know, time-consuming, emotionally draining processes to be vindicated at the end of them. But that's only after they've had you know, two months of their life ruined. Exactly. I mean, this this report is the culmination of years of evidence collection on the detrimental effects of the IHRA. I remember reading possibly, you know, three, four years ago, a story about in the UK, um, I think it was like a charity bike ride in support of Palestine um, that was cancelled for fear of breaching the IHRA definition. And, you know, academics, students, researchers have been complaining for years now in in their hundreds that the IHRA definition has a chilling effect on free speech. Um, the, the, the evidence is no longer merely anecdotal, right? We now have hard data that shows that dozens of cases just in UK universities, remember that the IHRA remains the uh, definition of choice uh, across 
many institutions, for example, in the US, where it's successfully weaponized against exponentially more people there. Um, so just in the UK, we have 40 people being effectively um, kind of falsely and baselessly accused of anti-Semitism using the IHRA definition. Um, and now we, we can see transparently that, it's, that it's, being, it's being weaponized in this way. I think what's interesting is that this use of it is not accidental. It's by design, right? I'm sure that in 2016, when the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance came together to devise this definition, um, you know, they weren't necessarily intending for it to have the same chilling effect on free speech as it has had. Kenneth Stern, one of the people that drafted the definition back then, who is a Zionist, by the way, has said he regrets how it has later come to be used, which is why he has since become an opponent, one of the most outspoken opponents of the IHRA. But what's what's critical to remember is that while it may not have been all of the people that drafted the definition's intention, it's certainly been the intention of the groups such as the um, Anti-Defamation League in America or the Board of Deputies in the UK that have pushed the IHRA definition in, you know, AD, the ADL and the Board of Deputies both being extremely hard right pro-Zionist organizations they have used the definition knowing full well the detrimental effect that it has on free speech. So I think that we should uh, be quite clear that um, this is not just an accidental, whoops, this definition turned out to have this terrible effect, but actually these groups leverage this definition and push this definition specifically in order to hinder uh, pro-Palestinian free speech. Um, and I think, you know, the reason why such definitions have been forwarded, definitions which aren't just um, extremely pro-Israel in their sort of framing, but they're also kind of loose, catch-all definitions, is in order partly to present um, anti-Semitism as anti-Zionism and to conflate those two things, but also to do another extremely detrimental thing, which is to falsely present anti-Semitism as a uh, rapidly growing phenomenon. You know, you get these inflationary and inflammatory and frankly, for Jewish people like me, quite terrifying statistics saying things like anti-Semitism is the highest, you know, that it's ever been, forgetting, of course, I don't know, the mid-20th century. Um, and, and in order, you know, inflating these statistics for the purpose of justifying the continued existence of these rabid right-wing, um, supposedly sort of anti-anti-Semitism groups like the uh, campaign against anti-Semitism um, and so on. And, you know, groups like this use these, these definitions like the IHRA um, to... to to, to, to sort of make it seem like anti-Semitism is, is a massively growing problem, and particularly a massively growing problem on the political left. Right? We know that in actual fact, the people who go into synagogues and murder Jews in Pittsburgh, the people who shoot up, shoot up um, kebab shops in Germany uh, and go into synagogues shortly afterwards are right-wing terrorists, right? They're not uh, people on somehow the political left. But these kind of definitions like the IHRA allow the problem of anti-Semitism to be located primarily um, or, or at least equally as a problem for left and right, when we know full well that that is absolutely not the case. I think also an important thing to say is that 
the the IHRA, it's not that we need the IHRA or bust, you know, the IHRA has had serious and, and actually really good faith challenge from Jewish scholars and scholars of Jewish history um, and, and alternatives, really credible alternatives to the IHRA have been proposed. In 2021, we had 200 uh, scholars of uh, anti-Semitism and Jewish history co-sign what's called the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism, which unlike the IHRA, does not make and does not revolve primarily, seven of the 11 um, examples of anti-Semitism given by the IHRA revolve around Israel, doesn't make anti-Semitism revolve around Israel. And in fact, provides very helpful examples of where anti-Zionism and criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism. So it's not like we don't have alternatives. It's not like universities don't have alternative definitions that are much more accurate, more precise, and, and fundamentally fairer that they could use instead. Using IHRA is a political choice. I think what's also a political choice and a very bad political choice, and, and I'll, I'll finish with this, is the emphasis on fighting anti-Semitism through definitions. We, we can't define anti-Semitism out of existence. We can't, nor can we actually police anti-Semitism out of existence. Not simply by saying that's anti-Semitic, that's anti-Semitic. You, you know, you go to jail, you get fined, you get kicked out of university. Can we solve the problem of anti-Semitism? That, that's simply just fighting an uphill battle. The way that we solve anti-Semitism and truly um, sort of, you know, rid our society of it rather than simply, you know, uh, like enjoy kind of being punitive to people that have contravened the IHRA or whatever def definition is by educating people on anti-Semitism. And that's really what I encourage people to do. I do think that people on the left need a better education in and understanding of anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, at the moment, you know, one of the few organizations to be providing that, that kind of education within the Labour Party is the Zionist organization, Jewish the Jewish labor movement. But there are many other resources that leftists can look to um, to educate themselves on anti-Semitism and its place within the kind of pantheon of racism. And one of them we've actually linked to in the uh, notes on YouTube. Um, and it's by April Rosenblum, who's an American academic. And in 2007, she wrote a pamphlet called uh, The Past Didn't Go Anywhere. And it's designed specifically for left-wing movements. To, to better understand and equip themselves with, with education on anti-Semitism. And I think that's just such a better approach than trying to taking a punitive, carceral um, sort of approach to anti-Semitism that tries to kind of legislate it out of existence. It simply won't work. And certainly definitions like the IHRA do more harm than good. Let's go on to our next story. Over the last year, there's been a marked rise in shoplifting. It's a story we've covered a number of times on this show before. But now, the boss of major high street retailer John Lewis has described the rise as an epidemic. John Lewis and nine other retailers have now banded together to fund a police crackdown on shoplifting to the tune of £600,000. John Lewis head Sharon White described the operation called Project Pegasus on Radio 4's Today programme. What is Project Pegasus going to do that the police don't already do? I think it's um, it's very much retailers and the police sort of sitting down together and working on this problem collectively. I mean, one of the big issues we're finding, so for, for the police to have some of the data, some of the information about what's happening in store, I think will be vital. And we're finding, for example, that it is, it's prolific, it's repeat offenders often, uh, I mean, I was in a conversation last week about Pegasus talking about Sussex, for example, uh, and there might be 10 or 12 
offenders that are causing sort of havoc across the number of businesses. But why wouldn't those people have been identified already? Because your, your shops must be full of CCTV. We have. I think one of the issues and one of the reasons why the, the current debate is so important is that uh, those incidents haven't always been responded to. By the police? Um, by the police. And that's why we're reaching out. Lots of other retailers are reaching out. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a glass half full individual by nature. I think the collaboration, I think, can really take us a step forward. But it has been the case that many of our incidents haven't been responding to. And, and sometimes those incidents have got, you know, some violent aspects to it, which is why the safety of my partners, the safety of shop workers is, is, is my prime, prime consideration. It's quite an interesting situation. Private companies essentially paying the police to prioritise needs, especially when six hundred grand is is, is is a tiny amount of money in the grand scheme of things. It's also interesting, according to data from the British Retail Consortium, shoplifting has increased by twenty six percent in twenty twenty two. But police statistics show that the end of March this year, or by the end of March this year, the crime had only reached its pre pandemic levels. But it does seem. And that the form the crime takes has changed. On BBC's World at One, a small retailer described how shoplifters' techniques have shifted. Right, they come in, they'll produce their rucksack or a great big shopping bag, get their hand behind the products and then swoop them off the counter into the bag, laugh at you and walk out. So it's what, just blatant? They're not trying to hide it? No, 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 no. Years ago, you'd get the, you know, you'd notice... um, a shelf empty, which you knew a shoplifter had been in because they'd been sneaking, do it. Now, because they know our company's policy is not to approach and not to put yourself in danger, let them have what they want, they come in and brazenly do it. And what, do you recognise them? So yes. what, somebody will come in, you'll see them come in and you'll know they're just going to nick stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've actually stood next to them making notes of what they're taking because they're just laughing at us. Those police statistics also depend on the police actually recording cases of shoplifting. And that's something the small retailer didn't see happening in her store. What happens when you call the police? If it's less than £200, they don't really want to know. Um, If it's over £200, sometimes you might see someone the next day or three days later, but that's very rare. It's mostly just a crime number. What, so you get a crime number and that's it? You don't hear anything? Yeah, now. I think you have a panic button in the shop, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, you've had a, I mean, you start pressing them every time. The police are going to get very angry with you because then they'll cancel it because they'll say you're abusing the panic button because a panic button should really be if it's really serious. So what if it's when you say what's really serious if somebody is aggressive? Uh, armed robbery, yeah. I mean, we had an incident a few weeks ago. Um, a regular gentleman that keeps coming in. Um, came in. Two guys saw him. Rugby tackled him. These are just general public. Um, rugby tackled him, got the bag back off him. Anyhow, yeah, he ran off, this gentleman did, and then we had a report that he was on his way back up to the shop with a hammer. So then we had to lock the door. We phoned the police. Uh, the police didn't come out. The statistics do show that there don't seem to be more shoplifting incidents than were happening before. You know, the police weren't investigating some of those, but if they're giving her a crime number, that does mean that it's still going to get noted down. But, it, you know, if, if I was a small shopkeeper, I'd be pretty annoyed at the police not coming round when I think someone's returning with a hammer. 
doesn't really seem like the service people would expect. Um, what is driving the increase in, in, in shoplifting, though, if there is one? Um, could it be the cost of living crisis, more than a decade of Tory austerity? Well, that's not something the Mirror seemed to care about when it splashed this on its front page this morning. It's the year of the shoplifter, they say. And the Mirror's demanding more prosecutions. That's not all, though. It's asking its readers to send in photos and footage of suspected shoplifters so the newspaper can publish them. Rivka, I, I mean, I don't think, you know, listening to the sort of uh, testimony of that shopkeeper, I don't think we should sort of minimise the impact that certain kinds of shoplifting might have on certain people, you know, just trying to make a living, right? If, if you've got people repeatedly coming back to your corner shop, stealing stuff, the police not doing anything about it, I can understand how that would be, you know, quite distressing, um, incredibly annoying, at least. Um, but this idea that we're now going to splash the pictures, the faces of shoplifters over, you know, within newspapers when, you know, everyone recognizes we're in a cost of living crisis and the cost of food and many essentials are sort of rocketed. Seems very strange from what is supposedly a left-wing paper, doesn't it? Well, I mean, I think we need to do a little bit of GCSE English language on that <laughs> on that mirror front cover. If you look just above the uh, splash about shoplifters, they, they're expressing sympathy for Kate Middleton because she's broken one of her fingers on a trampoline. Like, you know, we, we have to understand that, that papers like this, regardless of their kind of historic left-wing credentials, are engaged in the exact same activity as the rest of the mainstream media on this front, which is redirecting our sympathies from the powerless, people who steal, you know, baby formula and like, you know, baby paracetamol and bread. I mean, like, if people are going to, if people are stealing from a corner shop, they're not going to be stealing like plasma TVs. They're stealing food for their families to eat. Like, I agree with you that small business owners might find it harder to absorb the cost of shoplifting. And it's not exactly the same as targeting a mega corporation um, like Curry's, where you might steal a TV from, for example. Um, but at the same time, lots of retailers will have theft insurance. In fact, I'm pretty sure it'll be standard practice for a retailer to be insured against a lot of the loss that comes with, um, you know, shoplifting. That's not to say that going in with a hammer is justified, but I, I would also question why Radio 4 has decided to, to spotlight instances of particularly extreme and violent and unjustifiable um, shoplifting behavior compared to probably the vast majority of shoplifting, which is like desperate new mums, like stealing food for their hungry children. Like that, those are the people that are primarily uh, committing these, the, these offenses. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, shoplifting is an act that people commit out of desperation, not out of greed. It's degrading. It's humiliating to not be able to go into a shop and pay for those goods with your own money. People, people act as if, you know, shoplifters must take great enjoyment in, in, in doing this stuff. Yeah. Okay. There might be the occasional, um, group of kids that have a bit of a laugh stealing some like fizzy belts from their local corner shop, but like, probably the majority of people are pretty ashamed of themselves and the fact that they haven't been able to provide for themselves and their families. But they shouldn't be ashamed of themselves. They shouldn't be ashamed of themselves at all. They should be ashamed of the government that's created a situation where they can't afford to make ends meet. I mean, we already know, we've talked about this on the show hundreds of, of times, I'm sure. Like Universal credit is like, what is like 70 quid a week? It's like something absolutely insulting. And like people in this country's wages have been held down for the longest time since the Napoleonic Wars. So 
of course they're shoplifting. And no, it's not their fault. They haven't just gone in and decided to have to have a laugh. But I think, you know, what's what's more important and what's more what's more significant financially and economically is the amount that workers are being abused in this country. The total amount, the total value of uh, shoplifting in 2019 was two billion pounds. That might sound like a lot, but that's less than a single retailer like John Lewis made in profit in a single year last year. And and like compare that to the 35 million pounds of withheld wages of, of wage theft that employers committed in that year. Why is that on not on the front cover of the Daily Mail? Like. Why aren't businesses stealing from workers headline news? And it's because it's so much easier to blame powerless individuals who don't have the ability to get on the phone to, uh, you know, Michelle Hussein or uh, the hosts of Women's Hour to complain that they're, they're, they're being given a rough ride. Like, it's so much easier to target those people. And it's such a convenient distraction from the politicians that actually have the ability uh, to, to, to do anything about it. You know, it's, it's completely despicable that, that places like The Mirror and, and indeed the BBC are amplifying the complaints of retailers. It's fair enough. John Lewis wants to put out a press release about how it's being robbed every now and again. Like it can complain all at once, but for the mainstream media, which is, you know, has has an audience of people that are probably struggling to even buy a copy of the Daily Mirror because they they can't afford to make ends meet, to tell them that they're the problem, it's an utter, it's it's an insult. Like I can't believe that anyone, any reader of the Daily Mirror would look at that and ever buy the Daily Mirror again. Let's go on to our next story. The last few years haven't been easy on anyone. First, we had a once-in-a-century pandemic, then a war in Europe fueled inflation everywhere. But according to one wealthy businessman, the workers of the world have got it too easy. I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have, people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID, and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years. And we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance. That was Australian millionaire property developer Tim Gurner speaking to a conference for investors. Now, it was pretty shocking and it's gone viral. Lots of people saying he comes across as a complete sociopath, which I think he does. I'm actually quite appreciative, um, though, that he said that because I do think he is essentially articulating what is the dominant consensus among policymakers in the capitalist world, right? And it's especially interesting because he was basically repeating verbatim a theory put forward by one of the 20th century's most influential leftist economists. So there's a guy called Michał Kalecki. He was a Polish economist and a contemporary of John Maynard Keynes, but he was more sceptical of the promise of capitalism than John Maynard Keynes. So Keynes, he believed that smart governments could manage capitalism so that full employment would be maintained 
and inflation would be kept low. And so you could have harmony between capitalists and, and workers, essentially. You could make capitalism work for everyone. Keynes was a big supporter of things such as the New Deal under FDR. So you sort of pump money into the economy to maintain full employment. Businesses still make profits. Workers are getting decent wages. Unemployment is low. Everyone's happy. That was Keynes' idea. I mean, I'm probably, you know, to somewhat, uh, to some degree simplifying it, but that's the the long and short of it. Kalecki, though, disagreed. He doubted that capitalists would ever accept this deal. Now, in his classic 1943 essay, Political Aspects of Full Employment, Kalecki wrote this. Full employment would cause social and political changes, which would give a new impetus to the opposition of the business leaders. The sack would cease to play its role as a disciplinary measure. The social position of the boss would be undermined, and the self-assurance and class consciousness of the working class would grow. Discipline in the factories and political stability are more appreciated than profits by business leaders. Their class instinct tells them that lasting full employment is unsound from their point of view, and that unemployment is an integral part of the normal capitalist system. So Kalecki there is saying that while full employment might be technically possible within capitalism, so that's the sort of Keynes line, the politics of it won't work. And that's because bosses need to be able to control their workers, and they can only control them with the threat of unemployment and ultimately the threat of poverty. Now, if you threaten your worker with unemployment, but you've got quite generous unemployment payments, then yeah, that's not going to be a particularly effective disciplining mechanism. But if you threaten your workers with unemployment and also you have low unemployment benefits, then yeah, they are going to find it a little bit scary to stand up to you, right? So basically you want to put workers in a vulnerable, in a precarious situation, precisely so they don't get ideas above their station. Precisely so, they have to listen to the boss and not speak back. And it's for that reason, not necessarily because of technocratic reasons such as inflation. So often you'll hear sort of there's this trade-off between inflation and unemployment, and that's why we can't have full employment or we can't have employment to a, a very high level all the time. What Kalecki is saying is it hasn't really got anything to do with a technocratic issue about inflation. What it's got to do with is politics. It's got to do with power. It's about the power of the employer vis-a-vis -vis the worker. And that's why under capitalism, you'll always have precarity because they need it. Now, Rivka, I've always loved Kalecki's theories and that property investor to me, um, you know, lots of people criticizing him, but to me, he's demonstrated the logic of Kalecki better than any leftist academic might be able to. And for that, I'm somewhat grateful to him. Rivka, I want your thoughts on this. As I say, I've already, uh, Kalecki's theories, I think, are excellent, really, really powerful. I'm very appreciative of this property investor for just basically putting them forward in a way which is, I think, more persuasive than any leftist academic might be able to do. Right. I mean, like, it's interesting that there's been so much outrage at his comments because clearly they kind of crystallize um, a sort of, well, the way in which they expose, you know, it's a mask off moment. They expose the way in which capitalism normally operates. But it kind of, in a way, shows how much faith people put in the system day to day. That it's only at these moments when some random Australian dude with like a massive forehead <laughs> kind of just lays out how the system works that people are so um, aghast. Um, but I think I think what's interesting is this came up actually a, a couple of weeks ago. I think when I was um, on the show when we when we talked about the statistic that half of renters or more than half of renters in the UK at the moment are one paycheck away from homelessness. And I argued, and I would argue all the more so in relation to this clip, that. That's by design. The Tories want a housing crisis where we are all on the verge of homelessness 
because that disciplines the workforce and that disciplines private rental, uh, private renters incredibly effectively. Because if we're constantly, um, you know, lying awake at night, worried that we might be made homeless or redundant or be fired, then we're not going to ask for a pay rise. We're not going to ask for a rent reduction. It works fantastically well. I mean, Kalecki um, is, is, has theorized this um, tremendously well. And, and I think it's really interesting, some of the stuff you've quoted there. But it's also like Marx. You know, Marx laid out the fact that integral to capitalism was this idea of surplus or what he called reserve humanity. People that capitalism didn't need within the workforce um, itself, but did need in order to, to discipline the working class. I mean, he, he argued that they were part of the working class, but also kind of like almost a shadow working class there in the background to remind you that this is what you could be um, if, if you don't get on with your work and if you, if you try and ask for more. I was actually reminded of a conversation that I had with um, a family member recently. We were in central London and we walked past a homeless man um, and I um, we, we kind of had a discussion about um, whether there should be homelessness in the UK and whether we should try and alleviate it by giving people money. Um, and she was arguing, you know, if we didn't have what would be the point of wanting to have if there weren't any have-nots? And I think that's exactly, she had internalized the logic of capitalism. She was effectively saying, it works on me. There being people in society who are marginalized, who are unemployed, who are homeless, makes me afraid enough to, to work harder. And so in a way, what Tim Gunn is saying is, is exactly correct. This is integral to the function of capitalism, that there's a surplus section of humanity that's there in the shadows waiting as a, as a kind of grim reminder of what happens if you try and unionize, if you try and do a rent strike, if you try and organize in any for any kind of um, people power. Um, but, you know, it's worth remembering that whilst this guy is getting a lot of heat on Twitter, this is exactly what central banks and, uh, you know, the Bank of England is saying that it's doing. The Australian Reserve Bank, for example, has recently said that it wants more unemployment. The Bank of England raising interest rates is in part to encourage um, a squeeze on demand, um, including in the labour force, that will create more unemployment. You know, our governments are, are you know, claim to think of um, unemployment as some great social ill that needs eliminating. But in truth, in truth, if there weren't any people unemployed in society, the system wouldn't work. And so they create, they intentionally encourage and create unemployment in order to discipline us who are in the workforce. It's worth noting, this isn't the first time that property developer Tim Gurner has caused controversy with um, comments which sound wildly out of touch and somewhat sociopathic, even if they do just reflect um, the real interests of capital. Um, in 2017, he told a reporter this... We are coming into a new reality where first-home buyers, second-home buyers, and a lot of people won't own a house in their lifetime. That is just the reality of where we're going. So you think that young people have now got the prospect of never owning a home? Absolutely, when you're spending $40 a day on smashed avocado and coffees and not working. I, of course, absolutely. Now, I looked at the average price of an apartment in Melbourne. It's about 800000 Australian dollars. To afford that, you'd have to save $40 every day for 55 years. So that is not a good strategy to get on the housing market. And of course, that's assuming that there are actually people paying $40 a day for avocado on toast and coffee, which seems a little bit implausible to me. Of course, um, Tim Gurner has less need to save for his first house because you guessed it, Gurner got on the property ladder with loans from his boss, who also happened to be his grandfather. 
or this is who we're taking financial advice from. Everyone else needs to get a little bit poor and a little bit more desperate so they work harder for their bosses. This guy gets to get on the property ladder by borrowing money from his granddad. Let's go to our next story. Britain has been hit by the news that a potential spy for China has been operating in Westminster. The details of the story are pretty unclear, and when these stories come out, I always find it pretty difficult to tell who is playing what game. Is this a genuine threat, or is this someone who's trying to amplify um, something else to basically create a little bit of fear about a perceived enemy? In any case, besides the actual reality of what's going on, we do have a funny clip, because on LBC, a representative for the Chinese Communist Party was clear. It wasn't us, because frankly, why would we bother? Are you a competitor? Are you an ally? Are you a, th are you a threat? How would you regard your relationship with Britain? First of all, between China and Britain, from the Chinese perspective, Britain is not a rival, is not a competitor, it is not an enemy, is not an adversary. Britain is just an important country to get along with in peace and in friendship and for mutual benefit. Now, how Britain looks at China, it's up to the British government and people to decide. But I think it will be completely misguided for Britain to view China as an enemy or adversary or a competitor. What do China and Britain compete with? China is the largest manufacturer of automobiles competing with Britain? No. China is the largest exporter of EV cars and will lead the whole world in EV production. Is Britain a competitor? No. China will be the biggest and most important producer and R&D in terms of semiconductor in no time. Does that mean that China competes with Britain? No. China will be the leading nation in AI revolution. Is Britain a competitor? No. So I think British government should not overestimate its impact on the global scene and view Britain as a rival of China. China is not. China is a fact. China is a megatrend for Britain to live with and get along with. Let's make peace rather than agitating for war. <laughs> we are a megatrend. You are nobodies. We are going to be leading the world in EV productions. Who are you? We're going to be leading the world when it comes to semiconductors. Who are you? Um, now, I should say, I, I don't think that is a particularly good argument, which would explain or which would, uh, I don't think that's, that works an effective argument that this guy wasn't a spy. As I say, I don't know if he was a spy or not, but we do know, um, you know, from the history of the Cold War or the history of, you know, whenever, um, that superpowers will spy on the governments of countries which are a lot less powerful than them. You know, America had spies all over um, the global south in sub-Saharan Africa. Those were all countries that weren't particularly competing with the United States, but the United States wanted to still have their interests represented in those countries. Of course, Britain on its own is not particularly significant, but if you were to take the whole of Europe, for example, I'm sure all superpowers have quite a few spies in lots of, or most of the countries of the world. You know, you don't need to have a big competitor or a, a different country doesn't need to be a big competitor for you to want to put a spy in their, you know, house of government. So I, I'm not sure it quite worked. Um, for the purpose it was intended. But it was certainly pretty cutting um, and a little bit humiliating. And probably good, you know, because British political journalists do tend to overestimate the significance of Britain. And it was, especially when it's compared to sort of rising powers such as China, and it was fairly entertaining um, to see that representative of the Chinese Communist Party, I suppose, putting Andrew Ma and all of us in our place. Let's go to our final story. On a recent episode of his hit podcast, The Rest is Politics, 
Alistair Campbell had a bit of a dig at Navarra Media. It was in the context of his co-host Rory Stewart's recent interview with Ash Sarkar. If I'd have been on Navarra Media, I would have said that I do think that the politics that they pursue, they, Navarra Media, pursue in this sort of relentless anti-Keir Starmer, anti-Labour leadership, Jeremy Corbyn, some kind of messiah, is that they overlook the fact that Jeremy Corbyn, you have said this before, partly responsible for Brexit, no doubt about that at all. And also, yes, you can admire him as a kind of, you know, a figure who's been around Parliament for a long time and so forth. But, you know, he didn't lead the Labour Party in a way that took it anywhere in the right direction in terms of actually winning power. And, and, I th- and the reason for that is I don't think that's what Ava really wanted. So there were a number of things I found rather irritating about those claims by Alistair Campbell made about Navarra Media. So one of them, you know, Navarra Media are obsessed with being anti-Keir Starmer. Now, I would say personally, I don't think I am obsessed with being anti-Keir Starmer. I kind of, I do think I recognize when he's done a decent job. I mean, I, I actually think it's quite impressive that he's as far ahead in the polls as he is. What I like to point out on this show is that if we want the situation in this country to improve, if we want public services to be improved, we can't just wave our hands around and say, oh, reform will do it. No, we have to actually tax rich people to get some money to do it. Now, what I'm saying is not actually different from, you know, someone like Andrew Marr on the New Statesman podcast, right? Keir Starmer is saying, we can have growth, we can have better public services, but we're not going to tax the rich anymore and we're not going to borrow any more money. Now, how do you improve public services without taxing the rich or borrowing any more money after 13 years of austerity. Keir Starmer has a critique of austerity, but he doesn't promise to spend any more money on those public services than are being spent after 13 years of austerity. So it doesn't add up, right? So we're just talking about the inconsistency in his logic. And that's not to try and make him lose the next election, right? That's to try and make sure that people genuinely understand what this country needs and don't sort of, you know, it's dishonest, essentially, what Keir Starmer is doing. And it would be bad journalism to suggest it was anything other than that. The other reason I find it frustrating for him to say that is because it's somewhat hypocritical. Now, remember, Alistair Campbell was no fan of Jeremy Corbyn when he was Labour leader, and he didn't exactly shut up about that fact. Now, even worse, it wasn't just that Alistair Campbell was critical of Corbyn in the same way that we are critical of Keir Starmer. No, to my mind, Alistair Campbell started a campaign which had a key role in bringing down not just Corbyn's leadership, but handing the Tory party a massive majority. Now, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about the People's Vote campaign, right? Alistair Campbell radicalized Labour members, radicalized many Remain voters so that they thought the only acceptable outcome would be a People's Vote. That position was forced on the Labour Party. I do have critiques of the Labour Party here as well. I think they should have committed to a soft Brexit back in 2017. They did lead on Remainers. But in any case, that problem for them was massively, massively heightened because of people such as Alistair Campbell, who I think had a huge role in delivering the Tories a massive majority in 2019. So for him to now turn around and say, oh, you're too critical of the Labour leadership, you don't want them to enter government, I think is nonsense. And in fact, I said that to Alistair Campbell in 2019. I think what you've seen is many people in the People's Vote campaign have tried to target a lot of ire at Jeremy Corbyn. And I think one reason they've done that is to try and rile up his base. So I don't think there is a majority of the public who are in favour of a people's vote. I don't think there ever will be, actually. Uh, So what I see as happening is that some people in the people's vote, not all of them, there are many people in that campaign who genuinely care about staying in the EU and all of their decisions are guided by how they best think that can be made to happen. I think there are others who recognise that a people's vote is unlikely to happen, but this is a great opportunity to try and drive a wedge 
between Labour's Remain supporters and Jeremy Corbyn I'm, by I'm trying to make him that he is the one I'm thing right. standing in the way Michael of us was, remaining. I was right. You know, don't like to don't like to, to say, oh, I was right all along. But in that case, I think it is very clear now that the People's Vote campaign, what it will be remembered for is destroying Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. There was never a chance really of having a People's Vote. There was never a chance of us overturning what was uh, incredibly popular Let's say it was, I mean, it was the biggest turnout ever in a sort of British election, wasn't it? And, and to just say, oh, we can overturn that. I don't think Alistair Campbell ever believed that it was going to be overturned. He was using that as a wedge to bring down Jeremy Corbyn. And yeah, he's a smart op political operator. It worked. But that means I think it's a bit rich when he complains that Navarra media journalists have a critique of Keir Starmer. Are we supposed to suddenly be really, really loyal to a Labour leadership out of, um, I suppose, you know, loyalty to the party when he was a key driver of the project that brought the last Labour leadership down. Also worth noting, you know, Alistair Campbell saying that, well, if I were on Navarra Media, um, I would say X, Y, Z. Aaron today publicly invited Alistair Campbell onto Navarra Media to discuss the Iraq war and its consequences. So let's see if he takes up that offer. Then we can see what he actually says um, when he comes on our channel. Um, Rivka Brown, any thoughts um, on Alistair Campbell's comments about Navarra Media on The Rest is Politics? He is probably the least likely person to ever step foot in the Navarra studio. You know, we've had Rory Stewart. We've had, you know, some right wingers come into the studio and and kind of debate with uh, mostly Aaron because that's his uh, that's his uh, favorite activity. But that's because right wingers have principles, <laughs> and right wingers operate in a kind of generally much more straightforward way. Like they say what they say and they say it, you know, like, whereas Alistair Campbell is so much more an evasive and slippery figure in exactly the way that you've just described, like claiming that we're trying to bring down Keir Starmer, when in fact he kind of semi-covertly did exactly the same thing in the form of the people's vote. I think also, you know, him suggesting that um, we, we've created this kind of magic grandpa figure. This is not a claim that's exclusive to Alistair Campbell, by the way, um, in Jeremy Corbyn, is, is something I think centrists often um, sort of fall back on. And it's because of their own anxiety about the fact that Actually, Jeremy Corbyn didn't win because he was some great charismatic figure. Jeremy Corbyn isn't a particularly charismatic figure, uh, but he won on the strength of his ideas. His ideas, which, by the way, remain incredibly popular in uh, our society, including amongst lots of conservative voters. You know, whereas what they're trying to do with Keir Starmer, and we see in the run-up to the um, conference, which is in a few weeks' time, uh, slapping his enormous meaty face on the cover of the conference programme, is to sort of recreate the culture of personality that um, that sort of grew up around um, Tony Blair, but at least had some ideas to sort of give it momentum. Whereas like Keir Starmer is literally just a wet wipe. Um, so I think that kind of anxiety about you know, Jeremy Corbyn's popularity amongst left-wingers, including left-wingers who work for Navarra Media, boils down to a deep anxiety about the total absence of ideas in their own camp, which relies mostly on underhanded tactics like getting a people's vote through, uh, getting loads of massive donations from businesses to spend on like adverts, I don't know, um, and just kind of stalling for time whilst the Tory party eats itself. I assume when you mean when Jeremy Corbyn won, you mean won the Labour leadership twice, you know, with, with a significant mandate. So there was clearly a lot more support for the politics of Jeremy Corbyn than the centrists ever imagined. Now they are, you know, well, they have been ever since 2019 trying to use that defeat as, a, as an opportunity to pretend that 
that never happened. That 2017 never happened. That those two leadership elections never happened. And that this was always just a very tiny minoritarian project of you know a few thousand people who can be dismissed as as, as radical extremists. That, 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 that's not the case. It's still not. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. We'll be back tomorrow from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navara Live. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.